Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to be here in the house with you this morning. As you can tell, the season of Advent is upon us. Amen? Amen. I think the turkey and the dressing have all been gobbled up, and some of your leftovers might also be history by now if you're anything like my family. You've either gone out shopping in person for some early Christmas gifts, or maybe you've been burning up the keyboards online as you've ordered stuff to be delivered to your door. The mad rush through this time of year in our consumer-driven society seems to work everybody up into a frenzy, but often leaves us asking on Christmas morning, is that all there is? There's a classic cartoon panel of Dennis the Menace, and he's standing in the middle of the sea of open packages, Christmas toys all over the living room floor on Christmas morning. And he looks at his mom and his dad, and he asks, is this all? For Christians, Advent is a time of year that gives us an antidote to that way of thinking. Advent is an alternative to the superficiality of our cultural Christmas. Advent is meant to help us go deeper in our walk with the Lord. And it helps us arrive at Christmas morning knowing in the depths of our heart of heart that there is so much more. In fact, the greatest gift there can be under your tree this year is not a gift that you receive, but rather it is a gift that you give. A gift that you give to God. The greatest gift is the gift of your wholehearted, freely given commitment to God. The gift is you allowing God to shape your life in exactly the way that God intends. In 1741, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, preached a sermon to his fellow colleagues at Oxford University in England. That sermon was titled, The Almost Christian. And in it, he described a person who, on the surface, had all the outward appearances of godliness. This person did all the basic things. They practiced decency toward others. They went to church. They abstained from bad behavior and sincerely tried to do their best. But Wesley said that as commendable as these things may sound, if they are only superficial, if they are only outward actions, then that person would be an almost Christian. In terms we've been using the past couple of years around here at Anderson Hills, we might say that this man or woman has only experienced the first half of the gospel. In that same sermon, Wesley called followers of Jesus to do more than just live an almost life. He calls them to live an altogether life. One that first of all fully loves God completely. Wesley wrote, such a love is this, as engrosses the whole heart, as rakes up all the affections, as fills the entire capacity of the soul, and employs the utmost extent 
of all its faculties. And second, Wesley called for followers of Jesus to fully love others, including and especially those who have wronged us and those whom we may have wronged. Third, he calls us to have a full trust and confidence in God so that faith is not just an exercise in intellectual conviction, but a holistic offering of mind, body, and spirit. You see, an altogether Christian is one who unreservedly and wholeheartedly trusts God and puts that trust into action. Again, in terms we've been using the last couple of years, this is the second half of the gospel. In this Advent sermon series, Almost Christmas, we're going to explore how we can go deeper during this Advent season. We're going to connect our Wesleyan heritage with our traditional themes of peace, hope, love, and joy. And our hope and prayer is that we will arrive at an altogether Christmas because of our Advent journey together. Last weekend, my wife Marge and I took three of our grandchildren up to our cottage on Lake Erie for a couple of days. They are 10, 7, and 5 years old. And as you might imagine, we weren't on the road very long when someone asked, are we almost there yet? And it wasn't me, and it wasn't Marge. <laughs> we passed the three hours that it takes to get from their home in Dayton, Ohio, up to Huron, Ohio, by answering innumerable questions asked by them from the back seats, by stopping halfway through the trip at a pilot near Finley for hot chocolate and treats. And every so often, we stopped and realized that although we'd come a long way already, we still had a long way to go. Advent is kind of like that journey to the lake. We know that Jesus has already come, yet we are still waiting for Jesus who is coming again. We sing songs like, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But we know that much of the time it feels like we're a long ways from our destination. We say things like peace on earth, goodwill to men. But we look around us and it doesn't seem very peaceful within ourselves, in the broken relationships in our lives, in our country, and around the world. Our almost peace seems far away from an altogether peace. And each week in Advent, we're reminded that our destination is coming, but we still have a long way to go. Thankfully, we have a God who is with us and who sees us through to the destination no matter how long we've been traveling or how long it feels like it will be before we get there. God will help us cover the distance between almost and altogether. Let's take a look at a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. About 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah prophesied these words about the coming Messiah. And he lifted up four names or characteristics of the Messiah that have become treasured in the hearts of believers. First, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. You know, when we don't have peace within ourselves or between ourselves and other people, Jesus is the wonderful counselor who gives wise counsel to us and advice that brings us peace within and peace with others. Next, Jesus is mighty God. He is God himself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Third, Jesus is the everlasting Father. He is timeless. Jesus was in the beginning with God. He is now with God, and he will live forever and with us, with God. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. My friends, there is nowhere else from whence our peace shall come. Jesus is the ruler of all things, and he reigns with justice and righteousness. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, when Isaiah was prophesying, the nations of Israel and Judah were in exile, captive to foreign occupying forces. They were longing for peace. And 700 years later, the world into which Jesus was born was not an idyllic world at peace either. Each of the people in the birth narrative of Jesus that we meet were struggling with peace too. They were filled with anxiety and the fear, so much so that the angel's announcement always started to them, do not be afraid. We see the old priest Zechariah serving in the temple, and the angel Gabriel comes and announces to him that he and his childless wife Elizabeth will have a son in their old age. And that they are to name him John, and he will prepare the way of the Lord. And Zechariah, we're told, is filled with fear. He was in need of peace. We meet Mary, the young unmarried girl. And the angel Gabriel comes to tell her that she will be bearing a child. And not just any child, but the very son of God himself. And Gabriel told her, do not be afraid. We meet Joseph, who was deeply troubled when the angel told him the news that Mary was pregnant with a child and that that child wasn't his. He wanted to send her away, but the angel told him to marry her. I'll bet Joseph was in need of some peace when he heard that news. We meet the shepherds watching their flocks on the night Jesus was born, and the sky lit up with the angelic news of Jesus' birth, and Luke tells us the shepherds were terrified. They needed peace. 
And the angels said, do not be afraid. And King Herod was afraid. When he heard about the birth of a new baby king, he was terrified. He was jealous. He was paranoid. He would have murdered baby Jesus along with all the other baby boys in Bethlehem had the angel not told Joseph in a dream to escape with the child and his mother and go into Egypt. Again and again in the Gospels, we see that the world into which Jesus was born needed a whole lot of peace. Not just in society, but in relationships and deep within the human heart. Our world today needs that deep kind of peace, both within ourselves, in our relationships, and in our world. Jesus came to give us peace. Let's hear what Jesus says to his disciples about peace in John 14. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. I know that this is not a typical Advent scripture text. And it may sound strange to hear a passage from the end of Jesus' life while we are preparing to celebrate the beginning of it at Christmas time. But if we look at Jesus' life in its entirety, what we discover is that from the beginning all the way until the end, this has been a recurring, connecting thread. Jesus came to bring peace. He was born into a world that needed peace. He lived in a world that needed peace. And he was leaving behind a world that needed to know peace. Now the world in which Jesus lived had a really different understanding of peace than what Jesus was offering. You see, in the ancient world, peace came through power. Roman peace, or Pax Romana, came about after centuries of imperial Rome expanding her empire and increasing outward her territorial reach. And on the surface, it looked like Roman peace may have been an absence of war. But it was not a peace that was founded on the presence of justice, equality, and wholeness of life. It was a peace that was forged by oppression of anyone who dared rise up against imperial Rome. Opponents were put down and stripped of their ability to resist the empire. Yet when Jesus made his farewell speech to his disciples on that night before he was to die, and he offered them peace, 
It was not a peace that would be sustained by fear or impression, oppression. It was not to be born out of anger or revenge. This peace would not come through the accumulation of power. Jesus' peace would be born out of love. Jesus' idea of peace was derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which we often translate peace. And the Hebrew word shalom, however, has a much broader definition than just the absence of war or a good feeling of serenity or contentment. Shalom can mean peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. Shalom often envisions the whole and complete restoration of all of creation. Like in Isaiah eleven six, where Isaiah says, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. You see, the peace Jesus is talking about is this peace that starts with wholeness in yourself. But it doesn't stop there. It offers wholeness in your relationship with others. And then as more relationships are restored and made whole, we can begin to have shalom-filled communities and eventually a shalom-filled world. Shalom isn't just the absence of conflict or trouble. It points to the fullness of health and prosperity for yourself and for others. Notice in John 14, 27, what Jesus says. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. You see, Jesus isn't just wishing them peace. He isn't just offering a blessing of peace. He's offering a part of himself. He is leaving them a part of who he is as a way to help them through troubled times. And that is the exact same peace, the same shalom that Jesus gives to each of us today. It may seem incongruous to see the word peace emblazoned on holiday decorations or on the Christmas cards that we send at a time in a place where everything seems so divided, so polarized. But we need to remember that the world Jesus was born into was not one of harmony and goodwill toward all either. It was filled with mistrust between people in power and oppressed people on the margins. It was a world not unlike our own world. Peace doesn't come into our world through denial or avoidance that it's there, or even from distracting ourselves from the fact that it's there. No, peace comes through acknowledgement. It comes through engagement. It even comes through the disruption of our own ways of thinking. The Apostle Paul gives us some very practical guidance on how to be a peacemaker in a time of discord. Paul's words to the Ephesians in the letter he addressed to them 
expressed their need for unity, something that we still wrestle with today. And it addresses the tension between honoring our differences while at the same time looking for our commonalities. Paul's letter to the Ephesians reminds us that God's heart calls us to focus on what we can all be for rather than what we are against. Listen to what Paul says ought to hold us together in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. Make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And then Paul gives us the practical guidance. Hear what he says to us, beginning in verse 25. He says, therefore... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. In these verses, Paul gives us seven practical pieces of advice to work for peace with one another in Christ. First, he says, speak the truth. When you're sharing information, talking with your neighbor, even sharing on social media, make sure you've got your facts straight. Don't embellish the facts. Don't misrepresent the truth. And don't tell lies, Paul says. Second, he tells us to watch our anger. Paul says, be angry, but without sinning. He doesn't say, don't be angry. Angry is a natural human emotion. But be angry without sinning, or in a way that doesn't destroy the humanity of the other person or doesn't cause us to disobey God. Third, he says, don't steal. And Paul was talking about stealing property. But we can also apply his words to stealing the dignity that belongs to someone else. And in polarized debates, we may often be tempted to steal someone else's dignity. Paul admonishes us, don't do it. Fourth, he says, practice empathy. Do good so that you'll have something to share with someone who needs it. And let's face it, we all have needs, don't we? And when you can meet someone else's need, you will not only bring healing to them, but you will find healing for yourself. Fifth, he says, watch, it, watch your language. And I think this one is pretty self-explanatory. Say only what will build someone else up, never what will tear them down. Sixth, he says, guard your heart. It doesn't matter how holy your behavior is if it isn't motivated from a heart 
of peace. Get rid of everything and anything in your life that is not love. And lastly, number seven, he says, be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. For kindness and compassion are godly virtues. And every time you forgive or you ask for forgiveness, you are taking part in God's comprehensive restoration of the whole broken world. Why is Paul so passionate about this? Because he knows that if the church gets it right, then the world can get it right. If followers of Jesus can model a different way to seek unity amid our diversity, then maybe the world can discover a better way. And maybe we can discover peace, real, altogether peace, amid our conflict. On Christmas Eve in 1914, in the trenches of World War I in northern France, there stood battalions of British soldiers staring down their German counterparts. They were engaged in a brutal battle. They had already been at war for five months. Already a million lives had been taken, and there was no end in sight to the war. But on that night, something amazing happened. A British sentry suddenly spied a glistening light on a German parapet, less than a hundred yards away. Warned that it might be a trap, the sentry slowly raised his head over the soaked sandbags. And through a maze of barbed wire, he saw a sparkling Christmas tree. And then he heard the rising of a faint sound that he had never heard before on the battlefield, singing in German the words of Stille Nacht, Silent Night. When the Germans finished singing, the Brits erupted in applause, and then instead of returning fire, they returned in song, singing the English words to the Christmas carol. When dawn broke on Christmas morning, something even more remarkable happened. All along the 500-mile western front, unarmed German and allied soldiers emerged up out of their trenches and cautiously crossed over the no-man's land to exchange small gifts with each other and to wish each other a Merry Christmas. This hymn and other small gestures of goodwill like it succeeded where political and military officials had failed to bring a ceasefire in the war. Likewise, a hymn that speaks about silence amid our noise and busyness and heavenly peace among the tumult of war speaks to all of us today. What we believe about peace will directly influence how we will seek out peace. Peace without action is just a nice feeling. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. If you want peace at Christmas, make peace at Christmas. I know it may be hard to build a bridge to cross a divide. And it may be difficult to be the one who takes that first step toward peace. 
But Jesus tells us that narrow is the road that leads to life and peace. This Christmas Eve, we too will stand and light candles and sing Silent Night. And how will you prepare yourself? What action will you take during this Advent season that will lead to peace? What is one thing you can do this very week to seek peace within yourself? Maybe to forgive yourself of something that you've been holding onto for too long? Maybe to seek peace with someone else? Maybe ask for forgiveness or offer it? Or maybe in our community, can you seek to build a bridge. I want to take a moment or two right now and each and every one of us right where you are to pray, asking the Holy Spirit to help you think of one thing that will bring peace and then commit to God to do it. Let's make sure that when we sing on Christmas Eve, sleep in heavenly peace, that it is an altogether peace, not just an almost peace. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments in prayer. Holy Lord Jesus, Prince of Peace, we give you thanks that you came into the world, a world in such desperate need of peace, and offered peace to all people by reconciling us to the Father through your blood shed on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can now be reconciled to God, reconciled within ourselves, reconciled with our neighbor and that you are reconciling all the world to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, in this Advent season, help us to be your people who work for peace, who are peacemakers and therefore called your children. Help us to work for peace 
between ourselves and you if that's where we need to work it. Help us to work for peace within ourselves if we've been carrying something for too long. Help us, God, to build bridges with other people and to be peacemakers in the world. For God, when we arrive at the end of this Advent season, we don't want an almost peace. We want to be your children who have worked for an altogether peace. That this world may know peace like it's never known before. We pray this in your strong and powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.